Romans chapter 8. The book can be easily divided between chapters 11 and 12. A doctrinal preface to the practical application of our religion in the second half of the book. It can be divided again between chapters 8 and 9 as the apostle goes into a matter dealing with Israel in chapters 9 through 11. As we bring this doctrine of salvation to a didactic close at the end of chapter 8, the words just mount up with beauty and glory as the apostle brings to a conclusion his explanation of salvation that had commenced in chapter 3 around the 20th verse and ends right here in one particular respect before he takes up this subject of Israel, the Gentiles, and salvation in the gospel going to the two of them under different dispensations. These words are beautiful. They're the favorite words of many in the assembly. Let's very quickly remind ourselves where we are by looking at verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. This is the word of the Lord. Let us read it distinctly, give the sense, and move forward. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. This chapter has described suffering and affliction and grieving in our bodies. And it has mentioned those things several times. And it's those things that are being considered when the Apostle says, we know that all things work together for good. Those negative things in your life that have been pursued to this point and those negative things that will be mentioned in verse 35 and 36 and 38 and 39 are the ones chiefly considered. They all work together for good. The apostle has been explaining a number of things. That the whole universe is waiting for a great day of restoration to perfect peace, purity, pleasure for us when we are manifested to the universe as the children of God. He's explained that. We rejoiced in that revelation of a mystery that's contained here in Romans chapter 8. And he is telling us that on that basis of what's coming, on the basis of the Holy Spirit being given to assist our praying in content and passion, that all things work together for good for us. You can think of Esther... Did it work together for good that she was an orphan, virgin, beautiful, that was found by Ahasuerus' men when they went out seeking for a new wife for the king? Yes, it worked together for good. Though she would have been petrified, hauled off into a one-year wait to meet the king, it turned to the good of the Jews there in Shushan, the palace. And we could illustrate it a thousand times in the lives of those in the Bible and in our own lives. But notice that all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8.28 is not to be bandied about by those that do not love God because it is not a mantra for them. It's a promise for us. And it's something that we can rest upon. And the love of God is not something that you can say that you have. The love of God is something that you do. The love of God is to keep His commandments. The love of God is to offer the sacrifices of righteousness that Psalm 4, 5 described. The love of God is to be a peacemaker. The love of God is to go out of your way to please other people. The love of God is to give thanks for everything that you have. It is the works 
of loving God, that is the true love of God, and the man that has them is the man that Romans 8.28 applies to, and the man that doesn't love God, Romans 8.28, is not his. And he's a fool for claiming it because it's not his. Those that love God are further described as those that are the called according to God's purpose. Our salvation and His promises to us are according to purpose. In the Old Testament, His purpose was to show His kindness and His goodness on the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's Gentiles and Jews alike in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, it's His purpose. The first half of Romans 8, 28 is the most popular half. And we know that all things work together for good. That much of it's quoted so many times. But they only work together for good to those that love God, and those that love God are the called, or the appointed, or ordained, according to God's purpose. God has chosen a people in the world, and has purposed their eternal redemption, and their temporal blessings. And the verse is for them. And now the Apostle, it's a transitional verse because we've been dealing with suffering and affliction from about the verse 17 where it says, if so be that we suffer with him. From verse 17 through 28, we've been dealing with suffering. Now the Apostle is going to shift us out of this world and point us heavenward. Though there will be some mentions, again, of suffering, it's because heaven's coming, so the things that happen in this life are of little significance. It's transitional, and I taught you all this in the past. Verse 29, 4. Here is a coordinating preposition connecting these verses, a coordinating conjunction connecting these verses and telling us about God's purpose. For whom? God deals with individual men. That is why David referred to, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. The Lord will hear when... I call upon him in Psalm 4. For whom he wrote their names in the book of life. Your name. You know, there have been times when you stood in a classroom in the first grade and the teacher read off your name. You may have been a little embarrassed. But it's not embarrassing to have the God of heaven know your name and to have written your name in the book of life before the world began. For whom he did foreknow, and that foreknowledge is God loving us beforehand. It is not his omniscience of us or of what we would do. Because the Bible does tell us that when God looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek him, and the Bible tells us about this search in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he found none. The word foreknowledge here is God loving us beforehand. He purposed to have us, and He chose to love us. And it's a progression from His purpose to His love to the rest of this text. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has chosen a group of people in the earth to be His family. And the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, A man, born of Mary, is going to be our older and firstborn brother, and he is going to have the preeminence in all things. But we are going to be his brethren. He is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He will introduce us to the angels as my brethren. 
He will introduce us to God as the children which thou hast given me. Lord, thank you, he's going to say, for adopting all these children to be my brethren. But we will give him all the preeminence for all time. This is God's purpose. It is a great drama. And he did not do this to the angels that sinned and fell so that they will stand and do at the present time in awe of God's loving kindness toward us. It is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The angels stand in heaven and desire to look into these things that a wretch named Jonathan Crosby could possibly be a son of God and appointed higher than them in heaven for eternity. They to be his servants and to praise God together. But we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ as his brothers. When the last will and testament is opened of all that God has in store in his inheritance, and it is a decent inheritance, we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says we shall inherit all things. (laughs) All things. For whom he loved beforehand, in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, remember, he'll say to the wicked, I never knew you. He didn't say, I never knew you to invite Jesus into your heart. He'll say, I never knew you. The verb to know in the Bible has two meanings. To recognize and understand to your intellect, to be aware of, a scientific sense of the word of knowledge, or it is one of affection. Adam knew his wife Eve and the result was Cain. God said, of all the nations of the earth, I have known only you. Well, he knew about all the nations, but he only loved the nation of Israel. And I hope you remember those things. We've covered them before. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To predestinate is to determine the final destiny, or the destiny, beforehand. And God determined our destiny beforehand, and it was to inherit him And his inheritance for us in heaven, it was to be his children. We were predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, is what Ephesians 1.5 tells us. Four times this word occurs in the Bible. Two right here in this context of Romans 8, 29, and 30. Twice in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 5 and 11. Four times in the Bible. It's enough for us. We are predestinarian Baptists. However, it leads us to God's purpose in predestination. And it's the second half of this verse. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In making the family of God, God will only accept a family where the children have character pleasing to him. And there's been only one son thus far that has truly and fully pleased the God of heaven. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. God would thunder from heaven to witnesses that were around Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism and at other times. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was a son that God took delight in and God takes delight in. 
we want to be sons like that in a practical way, will never measure up on this side of glorification to the standard of Christ, though that is our goal. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 tells us that we want to measure up to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. But God is going to conform us fully. He is going to take a wild gadarene like your pastor. And he's going to conform him to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to take the wildness that is in your soul and flesh and conform you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. We are not going to become little gods. We are going to become the sons of God in the fullest sense. That is our destiny. Our destiny is not to be happy in this world with things, as is being preached today in most places. Our destiny is to be the sons of God in another place. And our purpose is to act like the sons of God in this place, meaning here in the Piedmont of South Carolina. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be chief among all the brethren. Moreover, verse 30, let's come to the 30th verse. Moreover means I have more to tell you. Ah, the Lord's telling me not to go on quite yet. Let me make one more point or two very quickly. Predestination. We claim as an adjective that describes us as Baptists. It does distinguish us from most Baptists. We glory in what most would turn to our shame. When most hear of predestination, they try to turn our glory into shame. But we glory in the fact that God Himself has determined our destiny beforehand. However, we can lay no claim that predestination applies to us unless we show the evidence or the work of that predestination in being conformed to the image of Christ. I believe it was three Sundays ago, four Sundays ago now, When I preached a sermon that many of you were convicted by, and I thank God for that, and I have received numerous responses to that end, that you understood and were gripped by the fact that unless you are showing a conformation of your life to Jesus Christ, that you're looking more and more like Him, there is no evidence. There should be no assurance in your heart that you were ever predestinated. Because if God has predestinated you, He has begun a good work in you. He has worked in you what you should be working out, and it should be visible that you are holy and harmless and blameless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Let us not take glory in the P word, as I said it to you. Let us take conviction from the C word. Let us be conformed to Christ rather than just taking glory in the fact that we are predestinated. It would be a shame to glory in predestination and not to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you stand before Him, if you say, but I was a predestinarian Baptist, it will do you no good. Let Him 
be announcing all the good works that were true of your life. And it will prove your predestination. And let that be the case now. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. I am not going to take three weeks to teach on the links of the chain of salvation that are in verse 30 because I've preached on them before. Let me briefly present them to you now. We started with the purpose of God. That purpose of God in 828 went to God's love of us beforehand. He said in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that foreknowledge, according to this verse, and verse 29, moves to predestination, then to calling, then to justification, then to glorification. This wonderful linked chain, as many as were, there's no one falling out halfway through the work of salvation. This is God's grace from beginning to end. It is absolutely certain and sure. Here is where you rest your hope for eternity. It is on God's performance. Because all of these things listed are things God does Himself for you. And they reach from His purpose, which is never turned aside. Go read Isaiah chapter 41 through 48 and see if you aren't comforted many times that God's purpose cannot be disannulled. What God has purposed, He will do. When He reaches forth His hand to save, none can stay Him by stopping it and none can even question, What doest thou? He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And God's purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 So here we have a golden link of God's purpose in choosing to love us, in determining our destiny beforehand, in anointing, appointing, excuse me, appointing and ordaining us to be His children and enabling us to it, in justifying us and giving us the righteousness of Christ, and eventually He's going to glorify us. You know, we won't be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ until we're in heaven, glorified. That is the final goal, and that is the main thrust of Romans 8.29. It's not about practical confirmation. I taught practical confirmation out of it, because if that's the end, it's practical conforming to Christ, That's the assurance or evidence that you're predestinated. As the Bible teaches everywhere, we make our calling and election sure by having eight things in abundance in our life, according to 2 Peter chapter 1. For whom he did predestinate, them he also called. It's our wisdom to see that there's no additions or subtractions of anyone in this golden chain. Each man ends up glorified in heaven, and it's because God predestinated that individual man and the others like him to heaven. God can use the past tense for all these operations of grace, because when God purposes to do something, it is as good as done. It is as good as past. 
So it works up to the last word of verse 30 by saying glorified. Now if you were a reader of the epistle to the Romans, you would have already been taught the grammatical lesson in Romans chapter 4 that God operates above verb tenses. Because in Romans chapter 4 and the 17th verse, God refers to a promise made to Abraham in the Old Testament, I have made thee a father of many nations before Abraham had children. And so Romans 4.17 explains that God is able to call those things which be not as though they were. Because he is able to perform what he has promised. My fav- one of my favorite passages on faith. What is faith? That God is able to perform what he has promised. And we do not consider any natural difficulties to God performing what he has promised. He promised that a reproductively dead Abram and a reproductively dead Sarah were going to have a son. And Abraham believed God. He staggered not in unbelief, but gave glory to God, believing that what he had promised he was able to perform. And so, the past tense is used for glorified, though none are glorified yet in the fullest sense. Because true glorification is to get our spiritual, heavenly, eternal bodies. God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save us in our entirety. In our spirits and in our bodies. And both will be together with the Lord in heaven. What does it mean to be called? God's call is his appointment. Or his ordination. Not or. And his ordination. And it includes regeneration to a point. But that is not the main point or part of calling. When God chooses a man's vocation, which is your calling, he appoints him to it and enables him for it, which is the same as our vocation as the sons of God. The word vocation is your professional calling. And our spiritual vocation is our spiritual calling. What have we been assigned to, or appointed to, or ordained to by God, spiritually, that can be called our calling? We have been called to be the sons of God. That wasn't a call of invitation. It wasn't a phone call. It wasn't a visitation call on Tuesday night. It was the appointment and the ordination of God to a man that this is what he's going to be. It is said of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was called to be an apostle. Did Jesus ask him to be an apostle? Or had Jesus already separated him to the gospel of God before he was born? Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 teach us that. He didn't ask Paul. He had already purposed that Paul was going to be that. And he was already going to give Paul that first 30 years of his life, or 25 years of his life, to make havoc in the church of Christ in order to give him an enhanced ministry as the apostle of the Gentiles who would suffer many things for him. While the Bible says God called Paul, the Bible also says God appointed Paul to be an apostle, and the Bible says that God ordained Paul to be an apostle. So when we compare Scripture with Scripture and study the Holy Spirit's use of words, we understand that to be called is to be appointed or ordained to an end. 
That means God has said, that is what you're going to do in life, and I will enable you with everything necessary to it. So when it's the spiritual call, you are going, you are going to be my son. And I will glorify you in the day to come. And I will enable you to be my son. When Moses was looking at the blueprint for the tabernacle, it was overwhelming. Moses wasn't very gifted with his hands. Moses was gifted in the wisdom and works of the Egyptians. And he had been a shepherd for 40 years. He was looking at these blueprints of all the fancy furniture and the layout of the tabernacle and the priest's robes and their breastplates and the umum and the thummum and everything else that went along. And he didn't know what to do. And in several places, especially Exodus chapter 31, God said to him, See, I have called Bezalel to do all the work for you. Bezalel has a gift that you don't have, Moses, because I've prepared Bezalel to do all this. And I've stirred up his heart. See, Bezalel had a calling. Very early in school, when he was given his first flower paste, Bezalel could make something beautiful when I and the other boys were in the back of the class just making a mess. Bezalel was gifted mechanically. Bezalel was gifted in design. Bezalel could imagine, could look at a blueprint and see it in his head and design. Right. Because he was called to it. He was appointed to it. He was ordained to it. He wasn't asked to it. He didn't get a phone call from the Lord. Hey, Bezalel, I know that you've been driving truck, but how would you like to design the tabernacle? And neither do we get a phone call saying, would you like to be a son of God? God has called us to it and it is our vocation because we've been appointed and ordained to it. And it's because we're appointed or ordained to it that we believe the gospel. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Acts 13, 48. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last night, the gospel is to the Jews a stumbling block. The gospel is to Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the preaching of the gospel is the power and wisdom of God. They hear that message, and instead of it being foolishness to them, like the educated intellectual Greeks thought, instead of it being a stumbling block to them, like the Jews who were looking for a deliverer from Rome thought, they heard the gospel and said, that's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. Like our brother just prayed a few minutes ago. What wisdom to design a plan of salvation like that? What made the difference? They were called. And if you go and read the next verses, it tells you that that calling is God's choice. God's ordination, God's appointment of them to eternal life. Because immediately the apostle said, For ye see your calling, brethren, that not many mighty, not many noble, and so forth, hath God chosen. Right. So see, it's not the gospel call. And the point I'm belaboring right now hurts me that I have to, and some of you don't even know that there's a controversy, but most Calvinists believe in a thing called the effectual call. 
by the effectual call, they mean that when the gospel is preached, sometimes God accompanies the gospel and regenerates men by the preaching of the gospel. We deny. Amen. If by effectual call they want to reduce that to when the gospel is preached, God accompanies the gospel and men are converted who were already born again, we agree. I'm not going to belabor it much more. This is where we stand. We do not believe in their effectual call. We believe that God makes the preaching of his gospel effectual to the conversion of God's elect. But we don't believe that God uses the gospel to be effectual to the regeneration of those elect. We don't even believe the gospel is in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. This isn't the gospel call. This is God's call. This is God's appointment. This is God's ordination. And when the gospel comes to a person who is thusly called, he'll believe it. And he'll see in it the power and the wisdom of God. Look, look across the page to Romans 9-11 and see how much gospel you can squeeze in here. Let's just go right to where the Spirit would use this word next. Romans 9-11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now how much gospel do you want to squeeze in to Romans 9-11? There isn't any there. It's God's appointment of two twins in the womb, one to one place in life, one to another place in life. One to be a son of God and a vessel of mercy, one to be a child of the devil, hated by God and a vessel of wrath. It's God's appointment. Whole books have been written on this effectual call. If they were to come down to what the Bible teaches... That the gospel goes forth and by God's blessings the hearts of Lydia are opened from time to time and they hear and believe. We, we accept. But to think that God regenerates his elect with the preaching of the gospel, we deny. Amen. Regeneration takes place first or all you have is a natural man. And I want you to find me the place in the Bible that tells me that the natural man, apart from regeneration, can or will believe the gospel. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Amen. What part of that person do we preach the gospel to? They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Amen. They that are in the flesh cannot keep the law of God, for they are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. All those that God calls, He'll justify. To justify them is to robe them in Christ's perfect righteousness and to pay for all their sins. It's a two-sided coin, but as many as God has purposed to save, He has loved them with an everlasting love. He has predestinated them to an eternal inheritance as the sons of God in heaven. He has appointed and ordained them to that end and enabled them to it. And He has also justified them in a legal sense so that legally we can stand before God all of our sins and the penalty of those sins paid for by the death of Jesus Christ and our righteousness being the perfect righteousness He fulfilled when He was on earth. Right. Remember He told His cousin, when His cousin wanted Him to baptize Him, instead of John, instead of John baptizing Jesus, Jesus said, It is for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
at every point in Jesus Christ's life, he was fulfilling all righteousness so that we could be clothed with that perfect righteousness. That's justification, and it's been taught from Romans 3.20 through 5.21. Chiefly, in those verses, it's been taught very plainly. But notice, everyone that was foreknown was predestinated. Everyone predestinated, called. Everyone that was called was justified. And everyone justified is glorified. We might as well use the past tense. And that glorification is when we'll be body and spirit in heaven, made perfectly glorious for the presence of God. Right now, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What you've got is entirely inadequate for heaven, no matter what kind of health you have. God doesn't care about your blood pressure readings or your cholesterol readings. That thing that you're living inside right now, that tabernacle, cannot exist in heaven, as I've told you before, because it stinks. And I say that because it's corrupting while you sit there. Can't you feel it under your arms? I'm so sorry. You're corrupting. You're falling apart while you sit there, while I stand here. We can't get into heaven, but we'll be glorified. No sin, no infirmity, no pain, no sickness, no weakness. You say, what's it going to look like? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about verse 32 to the end of the chapter, and the apostle will get as close as the Lord will allow him to describe your heavenly body. Your body is going to be put in the grave in weakness. You won't be able to draw your next breath. It'll be your last breath that puts you in the grave because you won't be able to get the next one. Your body is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Go read that passage. It's wonderful. We shall be changed. That's what glorification is. Our bodies will be entirely changed. You poor people with the RNs and the BSNs and all the other stuff to take care of decaying bodies, your job is over. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We bless you. And we thank you. And so, if you're always wanting the context, if so be that we suffer with him, verse 17, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, verse 18, the bondage of corruption, verse 21, The whole creation groans and travails in pain. Verse 22. And we also, we groan within ourselves. Verse 23. Verse 26. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. With Romans 8, 28 through 30, forget all your infirmities. Forget the things happening to your body. Look at what the Lord's promised you. Look at what the Lord has accomplished for you. Look at the Lord's purpose being so strong that the word glorification is in the past tense. As many as were justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? What things? What things have been said in this chapter? Do you just want the things of verses 29 and 30? They're certainly true. God's purpose, God's foreknowledge is predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. What shall we then say to these things? Those six things are pretty wonderful. 
But what about what was said in verse 28? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Isn't that pretty good too? What about the Spirit praying for our infirmities with content and fervency that we can't pray? Is that pretty good too? What about us being delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God of verses 17 through 22? Is that pretty good? Yes. What about there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus? Is that pretty good? Yes. So I don't know how to limit it. And I don't want to limit it. But I want to point out all of them to you. And remember, when the apostle penned Romans, he didn't have a chapter 8. And he didn't have a verse 31. It was run-on material. So you were less inclined to try to fragment the Word of God because you always had the context as you got to verse 31 that a lot of good things were said in the 8th chapter of Romans. I won't deny that the most recent thing said, verses 29 and 30, should get the emphasis. But I don't want you to forget the other things that have also been said. What shall we then say to these things? As I meditated on that question, what came to mind was the apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 saying, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. What shall we then say? We should be without words. What words can we work up to properly thank God for these things? He works all things of this life for our good and all... Spiritual things for our eternal glory. What shall we then say to these things? We should shout, Hallelujah! We should want to sing, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, and sing praise to His glorious name. Why would the great and terrible God do such things for us as this glorious chain of salvation? Because it seemed good in His sight. He did it for His own glory. All the operations of grace are certain and sure to the elect by God's purpose. If God is on our side, what enemy should we fear? If this is our end, who cares about this life in comparison? Of course, we have to take care of the things of this life. It is a necessary evil as we move toward eternal glory. But in comparison, the things of this world are nothing in comparison with what's coming. How can you worry about your infirmities, your afflictions, or your persecutions, if you even have any, in light of this? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Does that sound like Psalm 4? But the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call upon him, stand in awe and sin not. You enemies of mine, the Lord is on my side. I'm not afraid of you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Because look at what he's committed to do. Look what he's promised to perform. And no one in heaven or on earth, no principality or power, no devil, no enemy of yours can interrupt, can stop. This golden chain of salvation that began with the purpose of God and will end with your glorification. What shall we then say to these things? The apostle would say, 
Anyone want to quote it for me? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. We are bound to give thanks. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? How can anything move us? Why should we be afraid of anything? Why should we fret about the little things of this life? Look at what God's doing for us. He has committed to this before the world began. And as we come to the Lord's table in the second assembly, He has given it a guarantee of performance that has no other like it. He delivered up His own Son to prove His integrity in the matter of Romans 8, 29-30. How committed is God to performing Romans 8, 29-30? He delivered up His own Son. If He delivered up the most precious thing in the universe, how shall He not also, with that Son, freely give us all things? Everything of Romans 8 to this point and what follows. How do I know? How do I know that I'm one of those predestined elect? Do you love God of Romans 8, 28? Do you walk after the Spirit instead of the flesh? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What does it mean to walk after the Spirit? You are full of love for others. You are full of joy. You're a happy Christian. You are full of peace. You're a peacemaker. You always make every choice to make peace. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. You're gentle. You're good. Meekness, temperance, faith. If you're walking and living that way, you can know. Romans 10 will tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in that great day of judgment. We don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be predestinated or in order to be regenerated. But we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the mark of faith. But faith alone is dead and is no better than what the devils have. It's faith with works. And those works are listed for us in the Bible. It's the labor of love. It's the patience of hope. Thank you. That's how we know. Right. Make your calling and election sure. Romans eight twenty eight through 31 are yours. And if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Yes. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let them bark ever so loudly against us. Let the devil rage with so much rage, anger, and ferocity against the church of Jesus Christ. God will perform his promises. And we're as good as glorified already. We should live like it every day. What shall we then say to these things? I think we should ask ourselves, how shall we not in return give him all things? What are you holding back from God? He's given us his all, and he has every good thing in store for us. We should be giving him our all. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.